Wu Wings, a virtual restaurant concept from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app. Wu Wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa in Alabama, with many more locations coming soon. Try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion. Tell them, Nate. Wu Wings, legendary flavors, world championship wings. Woo! Wu Wings. Yeah! Woo woo! Hey guys, listen up. I know these days when you watch the news, it feels like it's one hit after another and it's all bad news for the economy. Well, let me give you some good news. It's not all that bad when it comes to real estate. Let me explain. You see a year ago, man, real estate was hot, hot, hot. Everybody and their brother was trying to go out and buy another house. What did that mean? It was so competitive that a lot of folks got discouraged. So let me ask you, have you thought about buying a house in the last couple of years, but Maybe just couldn't win a bid. I used to hear that all the time. Well, now is the time to buy. Yes, interest rates have creeped up a little bit, but what that's created is an opportunity for you. A year ago, it wasn't uncommon for there to be more than a dozen offers on a home, many of which were over list. That is not the case today. So if you got discouraged once before about trying to buy a new house, now's the time to take another look. Now, yes, interest rates have creeped up a little bit, but you're not going to overpay for the home, but here's what you will do. You'll stop throwing your money away on rent and now you'll get a greater tax deduction. That's right. You see, at the end of the year, you're going to get a statement from your mortgage company that shows how much interest you paid and you get to write all of that interest off. That means you could get a huge tax deduction. You never get that as a renter. Not only that, homes are still going up in value. Don't believe the hype. All of the economists believe long-term real estate always works out. Let me give you an example. Maybe way back when in the housing collapse of 2008, you bought in 2007 and maybe overpaid. Buddy, if you hung in there, that house is worth a whole heck of a lot more now. If you played in the stock market, you know what I'm talking about. You only lose money when you throw in the towel. Real estate long-term always performs well. So here's my advice to you. Date the rate, marry the house. Find the house that you and your family love long-term because here's what's not long-term these higher rates. I've yet to see a single economist who doesn't agree with me that rates are going to return. So doesn't it make sense to get the house you want right now? And then when rates improve, man, just get a lower monthly payment. In the meantime, you'll enjoy a greater tax deduction and that property is going to continue to appreciate, meaning you're building equity and wealth for yourself. Not only that, how about this? We're going to save you some cash at buywithconrad.com. We're going to give you the peace of mind of a seven-year guarantee. When rates improve over the next seven years, not if, but when, that's my prediction, we'll refinance you again with no new origination points. Think about that. That could save you thousands of dollars and give you the peace of mind of knowing that you got the right house for your family right now. And then when the rates improve, man, get a lower monthly payment. Now, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this, but you do need to hurry to buywithconrad.com. That's the first step. You tell us how much you want to put down and what you want your monthly payment to be. We get you approved and then you go shopping just like a cash buyer at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Seriously, if you've thought about buying a house over the last couple of years, but you got discouraged, now's the time to take another look. Let me run the numbers for you right now. You'll be glad you did at buywithconrad.com. 
everybody. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great, Conrad. On my way to uh, Toronto here in a couple hours, so that'll be fun. By the time this episode drops, I will have already made my appearance on Sunday night in St. Catharines, Ontario. So in advance, I'd like to thank everybody that promoted the event and came out to the event. I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't been to Toronto in years. Man, I, uh, I've never been in Toronto, but, uh, I'm jealous. I've always wanted to go and hope you have a blast. I somehow feel like you will. It's like Eric Bischoff knows how to, how to have a good time. Eric Bischoff knows how to find great restaurants in a great city known for great restaurants. So I will, I'm going in early intentionally just so I can <clears throat> just walk around and find a good sushi bar, or maybe some Indian food. I'm craving Indian food when it gets cooler out. Like it is now when the fall comes and winter's here. That's your go-to. I really, really love me some butter chicken. Okay. You know what else you love? Stirring the shit. Uh, over the weekend, you couldn't help yourself and stirred a little bit of shit up. I love it when you do it too. Um, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Tony Khan went on, busted open, and was pretty critical of your criticisms, saying that some of the matches <laughs> that happen and AEW just don't make sense. Why is this match happening? And he gave you a pretty big compliment and said, Eric did that better than anybody. The randomness of some of the matches he put together, like Randy Savage versus Bobby Eaton made for a fantastically fun nitro. He's clearly a big fan of some of the stuff you did in WCW, but didn't really like the criticism. And I can understand that. Do you, in hindsight, I mean, did, did you have a chance to to see his interview or hear his interview. And what do you think of his comments? No, I didn't see it or hear it. I'm aware of it, obviously, because people kept blowing me up yesterday, you know, wanting me to react or day before. I think it happened on Thursday, didn't it? I'm not sure. But yeah. He usually but, goes on busted open on Wednesday. Yeah. So it probably happened Wednesday and you know, I, I'm aware of it and look, Hey, it, I've criticized myself plenty on this show, for right? Things that I, wish I would have done differently or things that I've learned subsequent to my time in WCW that I wished I had the knowledge or the, the instinct or insight that I have now 25 years ago, it would have been a better show, but there were certainly random matches that didn't have any story in WCW. I'm not denying that, but I'm also going to point out, I don't think I ever said in any of my commentary about AEW that I believed that every match should have a story when you're introducing new talent or when you've got talent that you haven't really um, matched up storyline wise with an opponent yet, but you want to expose that talent. You want the audience to become familiar with that talent. You want to establish that talent. Sure. Put them in there in a match or put people in matches that don't really have story, but use that time in non-storyline matches to give us some real backstory and information about said talent. Make us care. It doesn't always have to be in the form of a storyline, a traditional structured act one, act two, act three kind of story. Um, so I, I, you know, if I've ever given the impression that I thought every match on Nitro had a storyline, uh, forgive me now. Never meant to. My issue and my comments about AEW and, and the creator behind it 
is really about your top matches that don't have sufficient story or structure, or at least a compelling one. There's always an excuse for a match. There's always an angle, you know, your traditional from the back in the beginning of time, you know, inciting moment that creates a match or creates a storyline. Um, but your top matches, your A, a B, C, and D storylines, that's different. And I've seen a lot of matches, a lot of storylines, well, what AEW considers a storyline that I feel are just nothing more than excuses for a match. They're not well-crafted stories. That's my, that's my criticism. It's not a shot, not making fun of anybody. I'm not trying to belittle anybody. I'm pointing out that I believe in today's competitive environment with television being what it is that if you want to pay attention, Tony, build and grow your audience, you're going to have to do it with well-crafted, compelling, well-structured storylines. And I don't see it. I see excuses for matches, and that's not a storyline. So that, that's my critique, constructive as I hope it is interpreted, but clearly won't be. Um, in fact, I would, here's what I would tell Tony for, for clarification. Kevin Sullivan, not the subject of today's podcast, not the wrestler, the booker, but the producer, Kevin Sullivan. The TV guy um, from Nashville. Yeah, and, and he worked in TNA for a long time, and I worked closely with Kevin for a while. Kevin is now working with AEW, I believe. Kevin Sullivan, I'm pretty sure the last time I talked to him, has a show Bible that we presented to Spike. TV before it became paramount. And we did that on a regular basis. That was something that I felt was absolutely necessary for TNA to do in order to grow its audience. And I would encourage Tony to reach out to Kevin Sullivan, who is under his employee, ask Kevin to see that Bible. Because in that Bible, you will see that the A story, the B story, the C story, and the D story the top four stories that are essentially really driving your business. Um, I had those storylines broken down for three months at a time. We presented that Bible once a quarter so that the network was familiar with what we're doing. So the network could get behind what we're doing and knew what that they, what they could promote and what they should invest their promotional resources into. And it worked out really well. The thing that worked out best, and you can argue, and I would not, try necessarily to defend that they were the best stories in the world. Some of them were pretty exceptional. I think the aces and ace story is a prime example of that. You can hate it, not hate it. I don't give a shit, but it's an example of a well-structured story that evolved over time and was a result of the show Bible process that we put together and initiated. Go back, Tony, and look at that Bible and see what I mean about an arc and your top matches, your top talent, having storylines that are engaging you, you may learn something. And I, and again, I know that sounds shitty. You may see something that makes you go, oh, hey, we could do that. Oh, I get that. That would make sense. And it actually makes your life easier once you've got everything laid out for three months at a time with your, again, your A story, B story, C story, D story. And by the way, let's talk about what's an A story. What makes an A story different from a D story? A D story is perhaps 
the main event you want to have four months from now or six months from now. So you're building that talent. You are building your backstory. You're building. It's just like building a house, dude. You know, you make sure the dirt you're putting your house on is okay. And there's not a sinkhole on it. You know, you test it and then you build your foundation and you slowly build up. That's your D story is your foundation. And as time goes on, your D story becomes your C story, meaning it gets more important. And how do you define important? How much TV time do you give it? You've only, you've got a finite amount of TV time. Take out the commercial time. You know, I don't know what it is now. It used to be like 44, 40, 46 minutes per episode of actual program time, whatever it is now it is. But how do you assign that time? Do you give Two people who don't really have a storyline, who aren't really building towards anything. There's no plan for them to go anywhere in the future. You're going to give them a 20 minute match. No. And your main event or the, whatever, you know, matches are really driving your pay-per-view that you're betting on. Um, are you going to give them 12 minutes so you can give 20 minutes to somebody that's having a great match? It's exciting. It's a great match. It's a match for the sake of a match. It's like, you know, gymnastics. So as, as a, as a feud, or storyline between two opponents becomes more intense and you're reaching maybe the, say the middle of act two or the end of act two, that match is going to start getting more and more time allocated to it because it's more and more important. So that's what I mean about A, B, C, and D stories. There's just the stories that you're developing and you have to pick when you, you know, your A story is probably going to peak within 30 days three, four weeks leading into your next pay-per-view. That's your A story. And unless you have a plan to continue that story because of a disqualification or some other reason why there has to be a rematch, that A story, once you have that pay-per-view, kind of moves down the ladder until you figure out what you're going to do. And your B story becomes your A story. It's just a great way to keep yourself on track. And it's also a great way for talent when they know far in advance where they're going and what they're doing it gives them an opportunity to be more creative and to come up with ideas of their own and to determine how to make those matches the best they can be, as opposed to hearing about them on a, you know, Sunday afternoon or Sunday night or Friday night and got to go out and do it Monday as is the case in WWE or was. Um, so that's all, you know, give me story. And, and my critique of, of AEW has been your A stories, your B stories, your C stories, don't have enough story behind them, at least not compelling enough that the audience relates to. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, hey, I'm, I think Tony called me a hypocrite. I, I, I don't think I'm a hypocrite. Here, here's the quote. I don't want to misquote anybody. He says he took exception to and has a fascination about a perception, quote, that every match on every show should have a long storyline built to when, what it's taking place. It doesn't need to be the case for every single match. 
quote, frankly, the person that has been the most incendiary, contradictory, and hypocritical on this entire point is Eric Bischoff. There was a certain exquisite randomness to the lineup of the card. He's talking about Nitro. There were a lot of stories happening in WCW, but probably less than half of the matches on Nitro had a story going into them, and that was fine. It was the industry standard show. He would continue to see the person who probably put more cold matches on TV and did it successfully and did it well, say that it's an abomination to do it. It's pretty contradictory. I definitely don't want to see fans get brainwashed into thinking there's only one way to do this because they've seen it done one way for a long time. I don't think that, listen, I know these days there's a lot of finger pointing and, 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 and hooting and hollering and name calling. And I don't feel like that's what this is. I think this is just a disagreement about the way to present wrestling. And I actually like the discourse because I kind of agree with Tony in that there was some randomness sometimes to the matches. And it wasn't necessarily, as you would say, an A, B, C, or D like sometimes El dandy was going to wrestle the parka and y'all weren't going to have that main event in four months. It was just a fucking cool match. And as a wrestling fan, I think, especially as a kid, I would think it was fun to think, Hey, what would happen if this guy wrestled that guy as a little kid, I used to create that with action figures. That was kind of the fun of what would happen if this guy fought this guy. And that's kind of the fun of a video game. As a kid, we could make these sort of fantasy matchups happen. And you got to see sort of some of that creativity on nitro. So I think he, in a weird way is giving you a compliment, but responding to criticism from you. And I hear what you're saying about. Hey, it does make more sense from a storytelling perspective. And I don't mean for this to sound the way it does, but a few weeks ago, you even said here on the show, I I know people are going to hate this quote and it's going to go everywhere, but I don't really like wrestling matches. You like story. And I think maybe Tony and I, maybe we just like matches a little more than you do. Is that fair to say? Like we just, we're interested. Go ahead. Look, I, I did make that statement and I stand by it. I should have completed the thought, I guess. I don't like wrestling matches just for the sake of wrestling matches. That's what they I thought. Do not, they do not get my attention. Yes. I cannot pay attention long enough for it to matter. I will find something else to watch. If I'm watching them, if I'm, if I'm tuned into wrestling and I, I just want my wrestling fix and I'm getting a match, that's just a match. And there's no real story, depending on who it is. I may drop in for a few minutes, but I'm not coming back. I, 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 I'm going to go find something else to do. Cause if I don't, this is me now. Okay. Not everybody's like me. I, you know, I don't expect everybody to be want that, but I'm going to go back to what I said in the beginning of this. I've never said, ever said every match on the show should have a storyline. Right. That is a false premise to start the conversation with. Tony is saying something or or responding to a criticism that never happened. I never said ever because I don't believe it. It's impossible. Really. It makes no sense that every match should have a story, but your main event, your top three or four matches on your main event better have. And that is my comment that those stories are not compelling. And I think ratings back me up. AEW is flat. You can spin it. You can turn it inside out. You can invert it. You can microwave it. You can do whatever the fuck you want to do with it. But who is it? Brandon Thurston, I think his yeah. name is, comes out. Every time the ratings come out, he puts up a nice little graph, and he shows you 
you know, where WWE, where Raw is and where SmackDown is. On, 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 it's a beautiful graph, and he does a great job. I'm not making fun of it. I, I really do like tracking things like that. But all you have to do is take a look at, at AEW's record for the last, whatever, six months, eight months. It's flat. Mm-hmm. And I think there is so much great talent in AEW. Yes. I really, really believe that. I was never really much of a fan of John Moxley when he was in WWE. Not so much even when he first got to AEW. I feel much differently now. Yeah. And primarily because of the way he handled business and took ownership and control and turned chicken salad into or chicken shit into chicken salad, actually better than chicken salad, chicken parmesan. Um, that to me, he, he got over with me. Now, again, I, I tend to think of things different than probably most wrestling fans. I really, really respect people who stand up and act professionally over and above the call of duty and, and be able to save a horrible situation. That, that, that guy, he's my hero. He's the MVP of 2022 for sure. Chris Jericho, still to this day, in my opinion, one of the better performers out there. And I'm not going to go through the whole list, but there is a lot of great talent there. Agree. There's just not a lot of great story there. And that's what I would hope Tony would want to change. But I never said every match. I don't like AEW because right. of all the matches are random and none of them have story. I've never said that. By the way, you never said anything. I I just don't, I just don't think the stories are compelling. I don't think they do a good, I don't think they're committed enough, disciplined enough, or quite frankly, know how to craft a great story. Well, AEW fans would disagree. Uh, and I, I would agree that there are stories in their, their a storylines. Uh, but I, I think it's probably a little more nuanced. I think you've probably got to be someone who consumes every Wednesday show, every Friday show, you consume the YouTube stuff. You consume the social media stuff. And there's a lot of nuance in there. They're not hitting you over the head with it. And I think maybe AEW could use a little more of that. And perhaps WWE could use a little less of that. I mean, if we open a a WWE program with an angle 20 minutes later, we're going to see a video package recapping what we just saw. And then we might even see that again in 60 more minutes. And then briefly mentioned, you know, throughout the night. And then here comes the main event. I I don't want to interrupt you, but that's an interesting point you brought up. Do you see that on raw more than you see that on SmackDown? Yes. It's a three hour show. So I think they definitely do it there. Yeah. There's your answer. Yeah. That, that is why. And on a three hour show, you can't, and this is where I think my point is AEW doesn't do it enough, whether it's a one hour show, a two hour show, like. I don't think everyone sees every, I gave this example a long time ago because it's old news now, but when Christian turned on jungle boy, I had heard about that, but I missed the program, but I knew Christian was doing a promo the next week. And in, in the WWE way of doing things, either before Christian came down the ramp or as he's coming down the ramp, we're going to see clips of that just to sort of fill time and bring everybody up to speed. We didn't get that. We went straight into the promo, but I didn't see the attack. And in, in the WWE way of doing things, we would have seen a highlight package, uh, or, or at least a clip as he's coming down the ramp and we didn't get it. And I feel like sometimes that's a missed opportunity, but I, I feel like that's born out of, 
we have such a huge roster in AEW, and we're trying to get as many people as much TV time that sometimes maybe we do hope that everybody's paying attention and we do, maybe we rely a little too much on the nuanced storytelling as opposed to, Hey, let me hit them over the head with what's going on here. I, I mean, that is, I think you're right. I think trying to put so many, I mean, here's your first problem. You're, you're my opinion. That's all it is. My opinion. Right. Right. You've got a roster full of great talent and that talent wants to work. You as the producer, Tony Khan in this case, as the executive producer, essentially, um, he's going to try to make everybody happy. He's going to try to get as many people on the show as he can at the expense of growing your audience. How much sense does that make? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. That's the challenge with a, 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 his roster is bigger than mine was in WCW, I believe. You know, at, at, and I don't know what Tony's roster is, so I, I shouldn't have said that. Trying to make a point. But in WCW, at our peak, when our roster was stacked, I believe we had 80 talent, 80 to 90 talent under contract, which included people in the power plant, our version of development, right? And we were producing Nitro, Thunder, three or four shows in syndication. Oh, WCW Saturday night. We had a lot more. Right. to produce. And we still had probably less talent than AEW ha has right now. And maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not, you know, cause I don't know. Just estimating in my mind. I know what our talent budget was as a, as a, as a percentage of our overall revenues in 97, 98, let's see revenues at $350 million. Our talent budget was somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 in 2000, it was 40 million was your talent budget. I just know that. Cause I read a contract this past week or an internal memo. 40 million. Yeah. Okay. 40 million against revenues of 350 million. Approximately. What, what is Tony's what's the, what's the, what is Tony's gross revenues? We don't know. And we don't know that. Do we No. we spend all kinds of other stuff, but we don't talk about that. Do we? Now I say we, I don't mean you and I. Well, it's a private company. Why would you talk about that? Why would you talk about ratings? Why would you talk about all the other stuff you talk about? Well, because wrestling fans like to track that. It's a fun thing for wrestling fans. Mm. Okay. You, you don't, you don't agree with, I mean, I, I watch football every weekend. I couldn't tell you what got what in the ratings in football last week. Don't care. Don't think most football fans care, but thanks to you. Going head to head with Monday Night Raw, fans started to keep up with ratings for the very first time. No, I, I think that happened. That happened long before head to head. I'm not saying industry people didn't keep up with it, but I'm saying uh, Joe Blow, wrestling fan in Sheboygan, he probably didn't know what the Raw rating was. He does now, which I think is kind of silly, but you know everybody consumes it differently. So listen, I, I think we're, we're gonna. Table the Tony Khan stuff. I hate that his, uh, he was upset with you. And by the way, I don't think you even said those comments here on the show. I think they happened on Conan's show. Um, I could be wrong, but well, something I am going to bring up because, and I know we've gone long already. We are getting to Kevin Sullivan eventually. I promise. And it's going to be a fun show because we both <laughs> think a lot of Kevin, but man, Eric Bischoff, still a bad boy, still getting himself in trouble. 
I'm not in trouble. Well, I know. Dave you, Meltzer's in trouble. There we go. Okay. So Meltzer's the one that came out and made this stupid fucking comment. And in a response to something someone had mentioned to him about finances and WCW and Meltzer came back and said, I don't have the quote sitting in front of me. Well, I, said, I, I do. Basically, here we go. Right, go ahead and read it. Let me read it. Someone says, what do you say to the assertion? This is a, a fellow named Chris on Twitter. What do you say to the assertions that Turner were dumping a lot of their losses from other divisions in the WCW and others through intercompany allocations? Now that's something you've talked about here on the program. Yeah. And so did, so did Guy Evans, by the way, who yes. did a significant amount of research and talked to people in Turner finance that were involved. So there's, there's facts and there's the bullshit that comes out of Dave Meltzer, but I'm sorry. Dave quotes that and says it was actually the opposite of lo- a lot of wrestler pay was figured into Turner movies. And you responded pretty strong. I, uh, don't hesitate. I'm trying to find the, cause here's the thing you, you double down on this. And so you've been tweeting a lot. I'm trying to find the exact one because you came out with some live rounds. Let's see if I can find it. I do that when people lie and make shit up. Well, you, you were, it gets uh, me a little hot. What a lying POS. This guy has no effing clue what he's talking about. Name one, Dave. A little later, you tweeted, come on, Dave, you made a claim, back it up. Give us some names, which talent contracts provided income allocated from TNT slash TBS. Show us your information waiting anxiously. Then someone asked if he's such a liar and everything, why are you following him? And you said, it gives me great joy to expose this creepy fuck for what he is. You retweet a very rude Halloween costume thing about my pal, Dave. And then you quote someone else's tweet when they're talking about Brett and you said, well, let's see it and show us any language that suggests from the phantom contract include any references to money allocated from any other Turner division to help fund it. Uh, the, the idea is you're doubling down and saying, Nope, he's full of shit. I want to, I want to mention Dave did respond and said, Brett's 1996 offer that you claim was never made yet. He had the contract in his hand and described it in his book and interviews. And you acknowledged until 20 years later, changing the story. So he's really coming after you saying, no, it was a Bret Hart thing. I want to see it. I, I just look, I, I know what he said. I know what I said. We can talk all morning about the Twitter exchange back and forth. I'm just catching Here's up. The fact. Here's a fact. Dave is making that up. There was never, ever, not even a conversation between Brad Siegel and myself or Bill Burke. Brad Siegel was the president of TNT. Bill Burke was the president of TBS. And by the way, TBS wasn't doing original movies at the time. TNT was. There was no, there was never one syllable of an exploratory conversation about somehow having TNT, much like Viacom did, by the way, for TNA. But there was never even a, a conversation between myself and Brad Siegel or Bill Burke or Ted Turner or Harvey Schiller or anybody about using TNT budget, a movie budget, to offset expense for WCW. That never happened. That is Dave making shit up. 
Now, maybe he's making shit up because he relies on secondhand information and thirdhand information, or he believes whatever anybody tells him. I don't know. I don't know why he makes shit up, but I, I cannot emphasize enough how ridiculous that is on its surface. Number one, and this is why it's silly. This is why it pisses me off a little bit. First of all, if indeed, let's say talent A, talent X, whatever you want, no name talent, high profile, somebody WCW, I really wanted on my roster, but was not in my budget. I couldn't do it. First of all, that didn't happen. If I wanted it, I could do it. So there you go. But let's just pretend for the sake of dissecting this tripe that a situation occurred. And I looked at my budget and went, wow, this guy wants $5 million. I've only got 2.5 left in my budget. How the fuck am I going to do this? Hey, I know I'll pick up the phone and I'll say, Hey, Brad, I got this talent. I really want him on a roster. It'll be good for the show. But I can't afford him. Will you help me? Will you take some money out of your budget and just give it to me? So that down the road, somewhere down the road, maybe you can put that talent in a movie. That's a fantasy. That's a, that's a, that's a one-person circle jerk of a fantasy. It never happened. And there's nothing Dave can say that's going to change that. He can make up whatever shit he wants to try to dig himself out of this hole. And it's never going to work. It never happened. Now, were there case, in, and certainly in Brett's case, whether it was in our first conversation in 96 or when he actually showed up, um, just like I do with Hulk Hogan, by the way. Um, we make movies here, dude. TNT is making original movies. And if there's an opportunity, we're going to try to get you in it because that's good for WCW. It was good for TNT. By the way, these are TV movies, not feature films. Let's right. be clear about that because there's a difference. But did I have conversations about potential? Let me emphasize for all of the people that like to you know jump on Twitter and twist my shit around, were there conversations with various talent? By the way, Sting, WCW funded a movie, a feature for Sting called Why Men Commit Crimes, I think is the name of the feature. I was the executive producer on it. I paid for that. WCW paid for that. So sure, there was conversations about movie opportunities and not going to say I didn't, but you know, that was kind of like dangle the carrot over here. You got a wrestler that wants to be in movies. We make movies. Brad was very, Brad Siegel was very cooperative in that regard. Sure. Those conversations happened, but to suggest that we were bearing, because that's kind of a nefarious little bit of a shell game, you know, uh, implication that we were using somebody else's budget to help fund WCW is a lie. It's a flat out lie. Period. End of conversation. The more he tries to defend it, the more I'm going to triple down on it. In it, it, it makes no sense. Here's the other thing. 
if I was able to bring, if I was able to go to Brad and say, Brad, I can't really afford this guy. Could you bring him? Could you, could you offset some of that expense? I'd be proud of it. It's not like something I would be embarrassed about. In fact, I'd kind of pat myself on the back for that one. If I could get somebody else to help pay some of my freight, reduce my overhead, so my bottom line looks better, yes, that just makes me a smart fucker and, and taking advantage of resources. So it's not something that I would be embarrassed about or try to hide. I'd probably brag about it, but it didn't happen. It never happened. It's typical of Dave reporting a lie when there's just absolutely no basis for it. He's just making shit up. And it comes from Dave's disdain for me, for WCW, probably dating back to the beginning when Dave, along with everybody else, and Nitro going head to head with Raw, Bischoff doesn't know what he's doing. It's going to be a disaster. This is stupid. Hulk Hogan sucks. This company's never going to go anywhere. I mean, Dave buried us for forever prior to us turning things around and becoming the number one wrestling company in the world for a while. I don't know, but I, I have no idea why he makes that shit up. He's, he's a, he has needs. Let's put it that way. Let me say this. He has needs to be loved. He has needs to feel, he has a need to feel like he's an important part of a business that he has no business being in and obviously never has been. But he has that need. And I guess that's why he makes shit up. I don't know. I'm not mad about it any longer. I mean, I was hot yesterday. I, I was tell. fired the fuck up. I was actually having a good time. Mrs. B took off. She went out to LA to be with our daughter. And I'm leaving, obviously, later on this afternoon or this morning. And I just had some time. I had my friend of mine is building a basically an airplane hangar <laughs> and a big metal steel building. And I had to help him finish that up yesterday before the weather got bad. But once I got home from doing that and I saw that, I went, holy shit. And I had a great afternoon just shredding Meltzer because he deserved it. I, uh, I don't believe that Dave makes things up, but I do believe, and I think this is evident. <laughs> if you even read this week's observer, he prints what people tell him. And boy, you could tell there was one person in particular who had a lot to say about recent AEW developments. And I mean, it, his report was in my opinion, even written in their tone of voice. So I do believe oh, fill me in. Who was it? What was it? Chris Jericho spilled his guts about the CM Punk, uh, AEW elite issue, the brawl out situation. And I think Meltzer wrote word for word what Chris said. Now, well, that's just Meltzer's a clown and people need to know that he'll, he'll print anything. And they, look, I don't even have an issue if, if Chris Jericho spilling his guts and he's identifying himself and Dave reprints word for word, whatever Chris told him, I fuck. Yeah. Why not? I'd do it if I was him. Well, he doesn't say Chris Jericho said, he just says a top AEW star. So he's trying to protect it. But my point is you can tell. Over the years, well, Terry Taylor called him here. Well, Paul Heyman called him here. Well, well, well. So you could see if you're really looking for it. Oh, this information is clearly from so-and-so. Uh, and just based on, you know, the, the way the story was told, that checks a lot of boxes that it was probably Chris Jericho, but Dave wasn't there. So he can't objectively tell you what happened. 
So when he prints a version of events that is essentially from one side or the other, at the end of the day, it's from one person's opinion about something that happened several weeks ago. That's how we get the facts, but really it was just like one dude's version, right? It was one dude's version. And, and, and look, my issue isn't necessarily using this example. I, I don't know why he didn't name Chris Jericho. Why not? Cause Jericho's not shy. No, he's not afraid of anybody. He's an outspoken opinionated individual. What is he trying to protect? And in the case, let's go back to the, oh, a lot, by the way, not one, not according to what Brett told me, which is all Dave's got is what he was told to your point. Right. His comment was a lot of wrestlers talent was allocated from TNT. That's a fucking lie. And he reported it as a fact. That's my issue. Now, had Dave, I guess, said, I've been told in the past by several people. All right, if you want to print second, third, fourth, fifth-hand information from people with agendas, go ahead. That's, just a, that's a reflection on your integrity and the quality of your product because you basically come out and you're just a whore. You'll, you'll take whatever anybody gives you and you'll put it, put it out there as fact for money. You're just a fucking whore, but that's okay too. But in this case or in any case where you're presenting something as a fact, you better be able to back that shit up. And when it's not true, you should just say, sorry, maybe I said that wrong. How many times do I say shit wrong? And I acknowledge it. You fuck up, you fuck up. But in this case, like I said, I don't want to beat this to death. I want to talk about Kevin Sullivan. I just, I'm, I'm so over people like, well, it's really, I don't, look, I, I read Wade Keller. I, I have a lot of respect for Wade. I say a lot, but I have respect for Wade Keller. Jason Powell, you know, a lot of the people that are writing for now for Wrestling Inc., um, there's a lot of Dave Shear. There are people out there that are covering the business that don't make shit up. Dave Meltzer seems to be the only one that's got that affliction and he's had it since day one. And that's my issue. And I'll call him out on it every single time. You know what I know? I know it's seven in the morning as uh, where you are and seven fifty-two. well, when we started, it was seven in the morning and you were fired up. And that tells me you got a good night's sleep. And I know it's thanks to chili sleep. What's cool about chili sleep, Eric, is it's like a smart thermostat for your bed. So you can warm up, you can cool down. But for me, man, I know that I get better sleep when it's deep, cold sleep. There's no tossing and turning, no fussing and fighting with the covers or pillows. I get that rim sleep. I know because I have bright, vivid, colorful dreams. Now, thanks to chili sleep. I didn't have that before. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. That's my existence with chili sleep and chili sleep is now known as sleep. Me. It's the same great chili sleep. We've all grown to love, but under a new name, sleep. Me now makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. They create the environment that meets the body's natural need for lower core temperatures, promoting that deeper, more restorative sleep. Chili sleep makes the Uller, the cube and the doc pro sleep system. Either way, we're talking water-based temperature controlled mattress toppers. They fit over your existing mattress 
and provides you your ideal sleep temperature. Chili Sleep and Now Sleep Me is making mattress pads that are here to keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep, cold sleep. They're going to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. And their newest innovation, which I've yet to try and I can't wait to, the new Doc Pro Sleep System. It has two times more cold power than the other models. It's whisper quiet and has a tubeless mattress pad design that allows for five times more cooling contact. Pair it with the new sleep.me app for enhanced device control and sleep scheduling. That's right. You can automate the thing too. My wife and I love ours and I'm sure you guys are loving yours in Wyoming. Aren't you? We are indeed. We are indeed. It's a hell of an innovation. I'm really interested in trying the next level advancement of the product. Cause it's, I mean, especially in the summertime, man, there's nothing better than crawling under the blanket. Cause I like the weight of a blanket, yeah. you know, like when it's hot out and and uncomfortable. I don't like it when I, you know, it's too hot to have a blanket. I like the weight. It's like, I, you know, I have a weighted blanket. I absolutely love. I sleep like a rock. So between a weighted blanket, which is oftentimes too warm, but with chilly sleep or sleep me in the mattress pad, I get the best of both freaking worlds. It's awesome. Hey, let me mention too, uh, you and I both know a guy, I don't want to put all this private business on front street here, but he's getting a divorce. I don't even know that you knew he's getting the divorce, but he's in my group chat. And so we had a conversation about, or he was just telling us, you know, how different life is, you know, splitting up with his wife, moving, you know, not, not around his dog as much. And, you know, just Ooh, doesn't have the same, tough. doesn't have the same creature comforts. And he, he was honest and he goes, you're not going to believe this, but the thing I miss the most chili sleep. He's got, oh. he gotten spoiled on living with chili sleep. So I think, man, there might be a custody battle over the chili sleep. That's how damn good it is. Head over right now. Sleep.me forward slash 83 weeks to learn more and save 25% off the purchase of any new doc pro cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for 83 weeks. Listeners only for a limited time. That's sleep. S L E E P dot M E slash 83 weeks to take advantage of our exclusive discounts and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Sleep.me forward slash 83 weeks. And today, Eric, we're talking about Kevin Sullivan, not the guy with the show Bible who works for AEW in Nashville, but the doggone devil who knew how to book heat better than anybody and was responsible for a lot of the fun stuff we saw on screen in WCW. He was born October 26, 1949. So he just celebrated his 73rd birthday. He had quite the career, the Northeast, Canada, the WWWF, but boy, he really caught fire in Florida with a character that people are still talking about to this day. It's even been discussed recently on tales from the territories, the Prince of darkness as a wrestling fan. Do you remember seeing Kevin perform any of that? Or did you just learn about it after the fact? No, I learned about it after the fact, you know, that before coming to WCW, I, I had no access to Florida championship wrestling or a lot of the stuff that you know, was out there at the time. I saw, you know, local wrestling Vern Gagne's show and what I saw on ESPN, uh, which was Vern's show. And then obviously WWF when, when they came to be a thing, but I, I didn't see any of the more regional wrestling from anywhere in the country, not from Texas. I wasn't even familiar with the Von Erics until I started working for WCW. I didn't even know who the Von Erics were. Um, 
So no, I, I didn't, I, I didn't get a chance to see. I, I have since, you know, Tales from the Territories was a. I watched that episode, by the way. Really, really enjoyed that episode a lot. And by the time it was over, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about Kevin Sullivan because I, I gained a new appreciation for him because I was able to learn about his earlier career. And man, you go back and you look at some early photographs of Kevin when he was, you know, early in the business. It was a stud right there, brother. Dude. He he had a great look. He, I mean, he looked he looked like he'd tear you up in a minute. Great look. And and I like I said, I just when by the time that show was over, I had a much greater appreciation for him. Let me mention too, he has this great look that Eric's bragging about while just being five foot nine. It goes to show you that boy personality really shines through when it's done well. Nobody was talking about the fact that Kevin Sullivan wasn't the biggest dude in the world. And let's remember now he's enjoying a lot of success here in the seventies and eighties when guys are walking around as larger than life individuals, you know, you got Andre, the giant and Hulk Hogan, Roman, and then here's five foot King nine Kong Bundy. I mean, big John stud. And I mean, even a guy like Jake, the snake is well over six foot five and, and then Here's a guy who's five, nine and people are scared to fucking death of him. I mean, really a phenomenal job. You cannot overemphasize how impressive that is because, you know, today, you know, even, even today, you know, five foot eight, five foot nine, unless you're a, you know, luchador or, or in that cruiserweight kind of category, um, is a little on the short side, but back then in the seventies and the eighties, I don't think. Oh, it's just amazing to me that he did as well as he's not amazing. Cause he's an intense guy and he was committed, but, uh, it was so impressive. Really. Kevin was programmed and teamed with so many different stars in these different areas. You know, he's going to hold the Florida tag team titles with Mike Graham. He's going to wrestle bruiser Brody. He's even going to help introduce the world to Luna Vachon, but maybe he's most remembered for the introduction of the future woman to the business. Of course, she's going to become. Nancy Sullivan, his lovely wife, who unfortunately is, is no longer with us. He spent some time bouncing around in and out of Jim Crockett promotions. He's a member of the varsity club with Mike Rotunda and Rick Steiner and Dr. Death. And then he starts Sullivan's slaughterhouse, which had cactus Jack, buzz Sawyer, bam, bam, Bigelow. So he's a, a part of some factions here. What was your first interaction with Kevin? Was it in a behind the scenes capacity or as a performer? No, it was behind the scenes. I had, God, I hope Kevin doesn't take this the wrong way. We're, we're good enough friends. And I think he understands, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about Kevin Sullivan. Even when I worked for WCW, I just didn't, um, about 94, 93, 94. I can't remember the dates anymore, but when I, basically took over and dusty was the booker, right? Dusty was writing all the TVs and I wanted to give dusty whatever tools dusty felt he needed to do the best job he could do. And it somewhere along the line, dusty and I started talking about it and, and dusty said, I just, I need somebody that knows how to, to get heat in his finishes. I, I need somebody that really, really understands heat. I said, all right, well, do you have anybody in mind? He said, Kevin Sullivan. Cool. Hire him. <laughs> if he's your guy and you know him and you've worked with him and you feel that he's going to fill that 
position, you know, creatively with you and you'll be able to, you know, collaborate and get better product and, and get that heat, the element of heat that you're looking for. If he's your guy, tag him in. What are we waiting for? And I met him subsequent to Dusty bringing him in to help book. So that's 1991 when you guys first crossed paths. He has some disagreements with Jim Hurd, which feels commonplace and, and winds up leaving for a bit. He comes back in January 94, which is what you're laying out. And he was wrestling for both ECW and WCW at the time. And as you said there, Dusty is on his way out of a creative position. And now he's back. So when he comes back, he being Kevin Sullivan pronouns, pal, he actually teams with his brother, the former equalizer. Now, Dave Sullivan to feud against cactus Jack and max Payne. man, just the idea of, of cutting loose Kevin Sullivan and cactus Jack that just, you know, there's going to be some violence, right? Yeah. And not to be a, a dick here, but I, I didn't meet Kevin in 91. He must have come in and gone out before I really right. got started there. So it might have been, you know, within a year. I and if I did re- meet him, I certainly don't remember it. I, I it was ninety four for me. But yeah, Cactus Jack McFoley, um, along with Kevin Sullivan, there's a there's a combustible package. <laughs> uh while Dave Sullivan's injured, Kevin and Cactus Jack are put together. They actually win the tag titles from the nasty boys at Slamboree 94, that combination, man, what an all time great tag team that could have been if it had more legs. I mean, these are not necessarily guys you would look at and say, well, they should be tag team partners, but their style of wrestling and the promos could have been amazing. And Mick has told the story before that his plan was to sit out the rest of his contract, but Sullivan called him up and let him know that he needed him brother. And of course, Sullivan's on the booking committee very quickly in 94 and uh, well, they get the band back together. They do lose the tag titles to uh, Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma at bash of the beach 94. They're going to split up and then Sullivan actually defeats cactus Jack and Mick Foley's final WCW match. It's a loser leaves WCW match at fall brawl 94. I mean, these are some really fun matches that Sullivan's putting together here. And a lot of folks probably think by this point. His career's on the downhill slope, but he could still do it in the ring, could he not? Absolutely. And again, with Kevin was never, well, I shouldn't say never. In my experience, when I became familiar with Kevin and, and he was working with me and, and, and working in the ring as well, um, his, his style was not my cup of tea necessarily. That brawling style has never really been something that, I've been a fan of even before I got into the business. Um, I was more of a Billy Robinson kind of a, of a fan and, and a Nick Bockwinkle type of a fan, Kurt, Kurt Henning early on. Um, Kevin was always more of a brawler, not necessarily my favorite dish, but as I've said many times on the show, I was of the frame of mind and the belief that just because I don't like something doesn't mean the audience won't. Right. And for the portion of the audience that came into our restaurant to enjoy our buffet and that audience member loves that hard hitting, violent, vicious style of wrestling who better than Kevin Sullivan or McFoley for that matter. He, 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 he was great at what he did. And a lot of that was because of his character and he was believable. 
Now, some of the stuff that Kevin did, I really creatively, uh, I had to bite my tongue because I just wasn't into it. The Dungeon of Doom stuff we'll get into, I'm sure. But because it was just too over the top at a time when that type of character uh, or faction was just dated. But nonetheless, when it came to, you know, go back to the Chris Benoit, Kevin Sullivan series of matches that were fucking brutal. I've been in bar fights that were less brutal than those. It, it, it's, it was insane, but there was a portion of the audience that really liked that. How difficult is it? Or is it difficult? Because it, you know, we've read as wrestling fans that it could be challenging for lack of a better word to have a guy who's involved with creative, but also still active in the ring. Yeah. It, it feels like you're trying to serve two masters, right? It's horrible. It's just not smart. Yeah. And, and again, <laughs> I, I was learning on the job. You know what I mean? Um, that's something that I would never let happen again. If in my next lifetime, I end up in that position, I would never, I would never let that happen. It's just, it's a no, you know, it, 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 it was horrible for Ric Flair. It, 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 it put Rick in and Rick is this, you know, you know, Rick better than I do at this point. Rick is a very sensitive guy. Yes. He in, and Rick deserves the respect of his peers, but also wanted it. And when you put a guy like Ric Flair or Kevin Sullivan, anybody that's on the booking committee and whose careers are being held in the palms of their hand. Um, it's such a conflict of interest that it eventually will blow up and did it did with Rick. It did with Kevin, uh, Kevin Nash again, you know, found himself in that position towards the end of 99 while well, he was basically trying to help me because he could see, you know, where my head was at. But once he did that, he, again, targets on his back. Everybody's hating you. Everybody that's not getting exactly what they want hates you. That's a tough spot. How does Kevin do in that environment? I mean, he obviously has a creative mind. He's been involved behind the scenes and some of the different territories like Florida. And so he's proven to be successful as a creative mind. And he's proven to be successful as far as a compelling in-ring character and a draw. Uh, who can put forth great matches and tell great stories in front of the camera. But now he's doing it at a really, really high level. This isn't just a territory. This is a, a big brand owned by Ted Turner, a national company with television, international television. Is that something that you, that, that he was comfortable with rather quickly? Or do you remember there being a learning curve of sorts? No, I think Kevin came in with some ideas, you know, my, my recall on Kevin, when I first started working with him, when, when he was working under dusty. And again, I wasn't involved on the day-to-day creative when dusty was there. Keep that in mind, please. Um, but my exposure to Kevin and my conversations with Kevin early on indicated to me that this was something he'd given a lot of thought about. It wasn't like he showed up and said, okay, well, what, what, what's my job here? What do I do? Um, he, he hit the ground running and he, and I think that had a lot to do with just the relationship between Kevin Sullivan and dusty Rhodes. Um, that was a good working relationship. I, I, 
if I could go back and, and try to make something work that didn't quite work out, I would really spend some time trying to work that one out because I think the combination of Dusty and Kevin Sullivan was had the potential of being magic. Talk to me a little bit about when Hulk Hogan comes in, because we know 1994 is not only the year Kevin Sullivan is going to become more involved creatively, but it's also the year you land Hulk Hogan and you've admitted here on the program that Hulk needed to be comfortable. You could get past the, the, the money and the miles, the dates, what have you, those terms are easy relative to, he just needed to feel comfortable with who he was working with. And a guy like flair represented someone he was comfortable working with that he trusted that he knew, you know, knew how to help present the Hulk Hogan character. But when Kevin Sullivan is also helping book and steer the ship, and then he puts himself in a promo with the top star, I could see how some of the guys in the locker room might've been, wait a minute. Now I recognize this is the guaranteed contract era of WCW. So it's not as if everyone's being paid on the house. So whether you're working in the main event or working in the opening match probably doesn't affect your income, but in an old school way, everyone is still jockeying for better positioning and wants a better spot, brother. Was there any pushback on Kevin Sullivan booking himself with Hulk Hogan or did everyone understand Hulk Hogan really trusts Kevin Sullivan? Well, there was, I, I don't mean, I don't know if you mean, was there any pushback in general from other talent or was there pushback from Hulk either? Certainly not in Hulk's case. Hulk liked it probably still does liked Kevin Sullivan a lot. He had right. respect for Kevin and the words you use, which is, I think the most important one is he trusted Kevin. Um, and that probably goes back to Florida and Hulk knowing of and working with and just being familiar with, with Kevin Sullivan, they developed that trust long ago. And trust was the biggest issue for Hulk. I think Hulk had a pretty good idea or he, Hulk, Hulk trusted his own instincts in terms of what was a good idea and a bad idea. But that's not often enough when you've got a team of people around you that you have to trust. And I, and I know that Hulk trusted Kevin and liked him just out of personal basis. So zero pushback from Hulk, uh, the, the opposite, actually. I think Hulk was excited about it. Um, the rest of the talent never said anything to me. Right. Can, can I imagine that there were talent that wished that they were in that position that looked at Kevin and said, I can't believe it. He's putting himself in that spot. I should be in it. Oh, of course. Come on, man. That's a, it's the competitive nature of any talent driven business. Um, so I'm sure there were, I'm, I'm, I sincerely, I'm sure I am guessing that there were any number of people that had an issue with it. Did they come to me and express it? Nope. So of course, Sullivan is going to lead the charge against Hulk Hogan, the Alliance to end Hulkamania, if you will, with the three faces of fear, which was himself, the butcher who had just turned on Hogan. We know him as Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake and avalanche who uh, we know is John Tenta, the former earthquake. And then we get into the dungeon of doom. And I can't wait for us to talk about that in long form here on the show. And it's a real highlight for you, but boy, it was a way to create this over the top for lack of a better word, cartoonish heel factory that Hulk Hogan had been familiar with working and 
I mean, really had worked with the WWF for 10 years at that point, just one heel after another. Well, the dungeon of doom is said heel factory. This is all born out of trying to get Hulk comfortable with WCW. No, mm. Hulk was comfortable with WCW. I think once, once he committed and especially after the first match, uh, with Ric Flair, I don't think there was any discomfort with Hulk, but it was like, okay, let's, what do we do that he's excited about that Hulk's excited about that we think will work. And again, going back to the trust thing, you know, Hulk trusted Kevin. He obviously trusted beefcake. He Tenta. I think he loved Tenta. Um, these are all people that he was comfortable with that in the past he Hulk had success with to one degree or another. And I think that's look, we, I think when we go back and we look at people that were in creative that had a tremendous amount of success at any given point in that aspect of the career, and they find themselves in a new company or in a new opportunity. I think it's probably human nature and professional nature to go back to what's worked in the past. The challenge is you got to know when it's too far in the past or know if the, the business has evolved to a certain point or a certain formula, creative formula just won't work anymore. Um, and you know, I think that's where we probably dropped the ball, um, in trying to continue with the formula that, as you said, yeah, worked great for 10 years, you know, all these big, larger than life characters and over the top, very animated, um, character that all worked for WWE and it worked for Hulk Hogan, but the business had evolved. The, the audience had evolved and that cartoonish heel factory just wasn't clicking. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't growing the audience. Here we go again. We were flat. It wasn't going anywhere. Why? Because we weren't coming up with anything compelling. We didn't evolve our own product. We didn't meet the audience's expectations. So we had our, you know, hey, we're the highest rated show on TBS Saturday night, WCW. Yay, we get better ratings than this. We got better ratings than that. Didn't mean a fucking thing because we couldn't draw flies if we rolled in cow shit, mm. stood outside on a July afternoon. Mm. The business was bad. We were flat, though. It wasn't until that all changed that it all changed. On an early episode of uh, Nitro, Kevin Sullivan dresses up like an old lady in the front row. Throws powder into Hogan's eyes, ambushes Hogan with a walking cane, and then along with the rest of the dungeon, shaves Hogan's mustache, brother. <laughs> it's I got think he was doing a movie. I think he he was either he was doing something. I think he needed to shave that mustache, so that was a story that evolved out of necessity. It is kind of fun to think though, that this is the same guy who's going to book all the great stuff. Not all. I mean, there was help. I'm sure, but a lot of the great NWO stuff we all knew and loved. And here he is also showing, I can tell different stories. Even if it means me in a dress, shaving a dude's mustache. That's confidence, brother. It is. And that's it. I always get along with Kevin from day one. I got along with Kevin. I liked his personality and we just hit it off just the chemistry was there but i think one of the reasons is kevin had no fear he was fucking fearless professionally and probably outside of the business as well he just had no fear he he, he was confident enough in himself that he was willing to try anything 
He didn't balk. He, it was probably his idea, knowing Kevin. In fact, he was the head booker. Of course it was his idea. I mean, there might have been somebody around him that threw him the idea, and he went with it, but I could also see Kevin coming up with that because it's fucking crazy, and nobody would expect that. And that, Kevin liked that. He liked that kind of – he liked to surprise the audience. Well, let's, let's show his range and how else he surprised the audience. The Pillman crazy angle. The whole I respect you, Booker man, loose cannon stuff. He's a big part of that. Uh, huh. he's had, he's had a, a lot to say about this quote. The crazy angle came about because they were good friends and he had noticed how intent Brian was outside the ring. He was not a bad guy, but he was a heel at heart. And they figured if the locker room bought it, everybody in the crowd would buy it. And the thing that really put it over the edge was that Eric Bischoff held a meeting detailing the do's and don'ts for the wrestlers at universal. Brian came in late to begin with, and then yelled out, does that go for the Booker man too? When Bischoff was explaining the rules, he's acting as if he's half drunk here. And people come up to Kevin after the meeting, talking about what a jerk Brian was and that he should kick his ass. So he knew the gimmick was working. If we're trying to quote unquote, work the boys. And when he was asked, does he regret trying to work the boys? He says, yes. But the problem was they had to work everyone because certain members of the crew would make sure to find out the finishes each night. So this is, you know, I'm not going to say revolutionary, but kinda, it's the first time you're trying an angle like this on a big stage. I'm sure things like this had happened before in the territory days, but for a national property with national television, it's the first time something like this has, has happened. How on board was Kevin Sullivan with all of this? I think it was Kevin's idea. Yeah. I mean, again, I didn't, I didn't interfere too much with, with creative. I see still at that time, I didn't have any confidence in my ability to contribute to creative. So I, I was, I was about as hands off as someone could get when it came to creative, just because of my own insecurities more than anything else. All right inexperience. So that this is probably all Kevin. Kevin might remember it differently and I'd be happy to sit down and have a beer and get my memory refreshed. But if someone put a gun to my head or I had to make a bet, I would bet that that was Kevin's idea. Kevin and Brian probably came up with it together. We, uh, we've covered the, the whole Brian Pillman thing in long form on our Brian Pillman episode. I hope folks will check that out. Uh, but it is another piece of revolutionary business that Kevin Sullivan finds himself right there at the center of, um, and I think it's important, Conrad, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you though. I don't want to forget this. I think it's important also in your setup for that question about working the boys and Kevin's response to why he did it. I think a lot of that goes back to the issue that I've always had with dirt sheet writers and people who are willing to feed information to a dirt sheet writer to disrupt, to get their own agenda across, or hopefully get the attention of an executive, you know, um, or just stir the shit. And it's one of the issues I have with Dave Mouser is he's a funnel for them. I mean, he's a, he's a shit funnel. If you've got some shit, you want to make sure it gets out there in print. You want to somehow try to affect, you know, what the audience is thinking vis-a-vis a dirt sheet. Now you call Dave Meltzer because he'll print anything you fucking tell him. And that's, and that's, that's 
more than likely what Kevin was facing at that time. You had to keep everything a secret. You had to work everybody because if you didn't, you'd be reading about what you're going to be doing next week when you got back to work on Monday. It's fucking, it was insane. And, you know, I'd love to sit down with Kevin and ask him if that was really what motivated him to quote unquote work the boys. It was probably one of the reasons why dirt sheet writers hate it when the boys get work because then they don't get any information. <laughs> I like it. Well, there's the famous or rather infamous super brawl 96 match with Kevin Sullivan and Brian Pillman. And, uh, well, we know eventually Brian's going to wind up popping up in, in ECW getting a release to continue the quote unquote work. He uses it for real. He's in a horrible car accident, still winds up getting a big deal out of Vince McMahon. And unfortunately, just a couple of years later, he's no longer with us. Uh, he loses his life there in 1997. Let's, um, Let's talk about how Nancy came into the company. Nancy is his wife and she had been working in WCW before as a valet for doom and whatnot. Uh, even going back to like the, the Jim Crockett era. So she's now got an opportunity to come back into the company. She had most recently been working in ECW and, and getting some good press there. Is this something that he pitches? Hey, what about my wife or. Does he try to keep it separate and someone pitches? What if she came in? How do you remember Nancy coming into the fold here? Well, I think it was Kevin. Kevin just came to me and we talked about it. You know, I, Rick Flair had a lot of good things to say about Nancy. Um, so there was some internal support and I, I, again, you know, my approach was more of a macro management approach as opposed to micro. If somebody like Kevin, who I've delegated, now I have confidence in, I'm going to give them all the rope they need to do their job. And if Kevin or anybody else would have come to me and said, here, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dig through it too much. I'm going to support him until it doesn't work. And then we'll talk about it. But I think it was just Kevin coming to me and it was just a simple conversation. It wasn't monumental or memorable for that matter. Looking back and boy, hindsight's 2020. A lot of stuff could have been a lot of different, a lot different. Maybe, maybe the world, at least the wrestling world may have changed forever. Had Nancy not come into the company here, nobody would have ever known what was going to happen next, but th the story has been, and boy, I don't mean to veer off into a negative territory here, but it is part of the story. Uh, a lot of guys believed that maybe Sullivan quote unquote booked his own divorce got this big storyline where he's going to be involved in a feud with the horseman starts with the dungeon of doom versus the horseman. Eventually it really centers and focuses on Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan. They have some unbelievable matches, but behind the scenes, well, things are getting a little challenging. I mean, we're trying to tell a story where maybe woman is going to spend time with Benoit and they're even traveling together on the road and. Well, eventually Chris Benoit and Nancy become a thing, man, as the guy who's running the place, you're in a weird spot here. Are you not? It's an understatement, right? Yeah. It's so, it was so even to this day, you know, I, I never, I never talked to Kevin about it. You know, even after it was all said and done and they split up, I, I never tried to understand what happened between he and Nancy. 
I, I guess it was so awkward and uncomfortable. I didn't even, it was, and it's none of my business. You know, Kevin Sullivan and I weren't that close of friends where it would be a conversation. It would kind of come naturally. Um, it would have been awkward for me to go, Hey, Kevin, what the fuck? And what happened between you? I guess maybe it wouldn't have been, I would have felt weird about it though. So I never asked, but it was, it was really awkward in the beginning. I thought it was kind of cool, you know, cause I, I, I looked at it like, you know, actors and actresses have on screen relationships and fairs and do all kinds of crazy shit for the big screen or on television. And then when they rap, they rap and they go home and they live out the rest of their lives. So, you know, the, the interaction in the beginning, I thought it was cool. Didn't really think too much of it. And it wasn't until a while later when it became obvious that it was more than just an on-screen romance. Then it just got fucking weird. And I, I didn't handle it well. I didn't handle it at all. Whatever happened, happened. I didn't try to influence it at all, which is probably something that I would think differently about today. But again, I just, I let it go. It's weird though. It's very fucking weird. It's, um, it's, it's weird to even talk about now because we know what ultimately winds up happening in real life. But this love triangle, you would think, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for folks to have some paranoia and distrust in professional wrestling. But now when, (laughs) go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say distrust and paranoia are probably the two fundamental emotions in in the wrestling business. At least they were back then. Uh, I don't know what it's like today. Probably the same. And usually it's based on storyline like stuff that's not real stuff that happens in front of the camera and now we're involving real families wives marriages relationships behind the scenes and we're going to continue to tell the the story on camera and despite all that i've never heard that kevin ever took liberties which certainly makes him a professional if nothing else but i think a lot of people look back and maybe question the decision or the wisdom and but it's easy to look back, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, do you recall it ever even being suggested? Hey, maybe I need to get Chris and Kevin into the office and let's just sit down and talk. Was it, I know it didn't happen, but does anybody ever even say maybe we should? No. Okay. Not to me. Um, probably should have in retrospect. Do you think anyone at Turner HR had any inclination this was going on or would this have been below the radar for them? Turner HR at that point in time is as long as we weren't getting sued or publicly embarrassed vis-a-vis Bill Watts um, really didn't pay too much attention to WCW. They certainly would not have been aware of what was really going on because Turner HR and, and people in Turner in general can keep in mind, this is like 94. What year is this? What, what year are we talking Nin- about? 96. 96. Okay. More people were paying closer attention to WCW in 96, but for different reasons, because things were really becoming successful. We went from being the division that nobody wanted to having to field phone calls on, on 
you know, Friday night, hoping to get tickets to Monday Nitro um, from Turner executives. But at that point in time in 96, I didn't hear much from HR unless it was a re- unless it was a legal issue or a potential legal issue. So they wouldn't have known that what they were seeing on camera was also happening in real life. Right. Nobody in HR would have known that. Let's talk about, you know, it's written at the time that you have met with Kevin and you guys have agreed that maybe he's going to focus less on the in ring and more on the behind the scenes. And Meltzer would sort of speculate at the time that maybe that's the reason this Benoit storyline is going as long as it is, because Kevin, like a lot of guys, doesn't really want to get out of the ring. He's having a lot of fun. Do you remember having a sit down with Kevin and saying, Hey man, we gotta, we gotta have you focus more back here. Let's wind down the in-ring stuff. What brought you to that decision? Or is that all just rumor and innuendo? No, no, it's, it's a fact. I, I did. I did want Kevin to focus more on the creative and, and less on the in-ring by that time it became eventually apparent to me that there was a conflict of interest. I saw what happened with Rick. I saw some of the same things starting to happen with Kevin and Kevin, I love you, so don't take this the wrong way. But at that point in time, when I made that decision, Kevin had gotten out of shape. He wasn't, he just wasn't at his peak. And between the fact that he was the booker and the potential conflict of interest and the issues that that created and the fact that he was just, in my opinion, um, sticking around a little too long in the ring uh, is what led me to suggest to Kevin that he, phase out of his in-ring career and phase into more intentionally the, the creative side. And also keep in mind, we were growing a lot then. Yeah. I mean, things that we were rolling and I wanted my head of creative to be my head of creative only not head of creative. And Oh, by the way, I'm wrestling on the weekends right. or on TV. It's, it's bad. It's just bad. When, just in your opinion, when do you, when did you consider Kevin to be your quote unquote head booker? Was that 96 or did it predate that? No, I think it predated that. So he's clearly getting the, the nod from you as far as your vote of confidence and all that. But we've also talked a little bit about the very beginning of the NWO storyline. And it's even been said that Kevin Sullivan was concerned there's all these people in maybe Hulk Hogan's ear. Ah, you don't want to do this. You're throwing your whole career away. Look at all this goodwill you've built up, blah, blah, blah. Supposedly Kevin Sullivan makes sure that he's with Hulk the night before all the way through the night, even sleeping on a couch there to make sure that he's the influence that we need for, for Hulk. Do you remember that being the case? 100%. Talk to us about that. <sighs> Well, your setup was a hundred percent correct. Okay. You know, Kevin was concerned about it. I was concerned about it. You know, Hulk, Hulk liked to surround himself. When I say surround, I mean, not with a large group of people, but he liked, you know, Jimmy Hart because he trusted Jimmy and he, he didn't always agree with Jimmy's perspective on certain creative things. But I think Hulk trusted Jimmy in the sense that 
whatever Jimmy's ideas were or opinions of an idea was, it was not driven by a personal agenda or some other bullshit, some way that Jimmy could benefit. Because that, that unfortunately was, was a big part of life and probably still is to a degree to this day. Um, so Kevin, excuse me, Hulk was between Jimmy Hart, um, Hulk had a, and I think he still does have, has an agent by the name of uh, Peter Young. And Peter's a good guy. What I'm about to say is not going to sound like I'm, you know, a big fan of his and which isn't true, but it's just the way Peter is. Peter's Peter Young was one of those guys that would wake up in the morning and think about the 10 worst things that's possibly going to happen on, on any given day. I got you. He was just like chicken little man. Every, Oh, he was just like, you talked to him and he was either really, really up and, and trying to be a salesman more or less, or he was like the end of the world is right around the corner. And I'm my impression. Now I could be wrong about this because I didn't, Peter wouldn't come to me with this stuff. But I became aware that there were a number of people around Hulk, including Peter Young, probably Jimmy. I don't know for sure. Probably Jimmy. I Hulk's wife at the time, Linda, even to a lesser extent, his kids. And then the, uh, the next layer of, you should say Hulk had this big apple tree, man. You'd have all these people underneath the tree just waiting for an apple to drop. <laughs> so there was a there was a large group of people. And they all wanted to let Hulk knew know that they were looking out for his best interest. And and some of them were, by the way. But some of them weren't. They were just looking out for their own best interest. And I knew that there'd be a lot of people pulling Hulk in different directions. And Hulk at the time was quite capable of overthinking just about anything. And once he started overthinking something, he tended to just back away from it. Mm. And this was a big enough moment. Keep in mind a year earlier, I went to Hulk's house and broached the idea of Hulk Hogan turning heel and was summarily, you know, escorted out of the house. Very friendly. Let me take the beer I was drinking with me. That was nice of him. <laughs> but basically threw me out. So I, I, was, I wasn't sure that Hulk was going to show up. Or I knew he would show up, but I wasn't sure he was actually going to go through with it, which is why I had Sting in the ready just in case for this very reason. So when Kevin said, hey, I'm having Hulk, Hulk I think Hulk stayed at Kevin's house that weekend. He, he did. Uh, yeah, when Kevin said, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with Hulk full time. He's gonna stay in my house." I was like, "Thank you, thank you, thank you, Kevin," because it left to his own devices, and because of the people surrounding him pulling him in different directions. And Peter Young going, "Oh my God, I'll never be able to book you in another movie." Oh my God, oh my God, which is you know, the sky is falling between right. he and and Jimmy. Um, I thought there was maybe a fifty fifty chance that Hulk would decide he didn't want to go through with it. But it, when Kevin s- stepped up and said, uh, "I'm gonna basically have him on lockdown." Uh, I was grateful for that. Man, what a fun time. How all it could have been different. You know, let's, let's talk about the NWO because obviously it's going to become really the, the thing that changes the whole industry, not just WCW's business, but wrestling changes forever because of the NWO. And it's been said a lot that Kevin Sullivan 
was the mastermind behind booking that heat, brother. Set the record straight. What was his involvement? What do you remember his contributions being? Kevin was very much involved. Not necessarily in the original idea. Right. Because I didn't share that with anybody, including Kevin, initially. Um, but once the NWO rolled out, obviously that night in Daytona, um, 96, Kevin was in the epicenter. Um, I, I don't know how to put it any other way. You know, I, I do want to be clear though. A lot of the finishes and a lot of the heat, Kevin was in the epicenter of that he was steering the ship, but there was a lot of collaboration at that time. Yeah. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Hulk, myself to a lesser degree. There was a lot of, there was a lot of support. Kevin had a lot of support from a lot of people and there was a lot of collaboration. And I I don't say that to take anything away from Kevin Sullivan because Kevin, I, I wouldn't have been able to pull it off without Kevin or WCW wouldn't have been able to pull it off without Kevin. But if the, I don't want, I also don't want to diminish the input from people like Scott and Kevin and Hulk. Well, no doubt it was a collaborative effort, but I, I guess we should also mention creatively WCW is at a high financially. They're at a high Kevin's getting a lot of praise, a lot of kudos for all this. But he's also really struggling now with, boy, he's had a major life change, this whole relationship thing. And maybe that was it. Maybe it wasn't, but I think there was a point where Terry Taylor and yourself were really kind of concerned about Kevin and send him home for a few weeks. Was it burnout from WCW personal relationship stress or just a combination of all this? I don't know. My assumption would be having been in that position, not necessarily with a personal relationship that blew up the way his did, but that is a horrible position to be in. Kevin brought some of it on himself when he was active in the ring, but it, it is a highly stressful situation. We were, Kevin was Sullivan was under a lot of pressure yeah. as the head of creative because WCW was rocking and rolling and we wanted every show to be better than the last. It don't get me wrong. It was fun. It was intense, but it was a lot of pressure a lot. And I think it was, I'm guessing it's a combination, man. When your personal life, especially publicly like that, you know, hits a wall the way it did. Um, and then you've got the finding the, the professional pressure that's on you because that is a horrible job when it comes to pressure to be in that spot. And, you know, especially when you don't have a large staff around you that, that is really good that you can count on because you're, you're carrying it. It's all on you. And there were people around Sullivan, but some of them were better than others in that respect. So Kevin carried a lot of that weight. Can you, can you elaborate on that? No, okay. I don't want to bury anybody that doesn't deserve it. It just is what it was. I mean, you, you know, there was a, there was a creative team and some of them were better than others. Some of them were there because they wanted to, they were more concerned about their own self-interest than they were creating a better product. 
It just is what it is. It's politics. It's the same thing probably exists in in every business. In every business. Yeah. You yeah. know, Twitter right now is yeah. probably going through it. You know, who knows? Well, but, I, I guess what I was trying to get at is uh do you remember Kevin not necessarily getting along with anyone behind the scenes? Like, you know, this booking by committee stuff, I could see how there could be bickering and infighting and disagreements. And Lord, we've heard once upon a time, Vince Russo and, and, and Jim Cornette just did not see wrestling the same way. Did Kevin have any of that in his WCW existence? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think it was that. I don't, I don't think there was any like tense, consistent conflicts. Right. I mean, I think the, the team essentially got along. It's just that there wasn't anybody that Kevin could, you know, I think to, to be in that position, to be, we'll call it a head writer, booker, whatever you want to call it, to, to be that head writer, you need to have people underneath you that are with you, in this case, underneath you, uh, on an organizational chart, that A, you trust, that B, understands your vision and is bringing you ideas that are consistent with the direction that you want to go in. And I don't know that Kevin had that luxury. I think Kevin had people around him who he probably got along with and liked, right? And not didn't necessarily battle with, but they weren't necessarily bringing Kevin a lot to chew on either. So that what I'm trying to say is that all fell on Kevin. That's a lot of pressure. It is. Now add to that one more aspect of it. And this is something that I think I, I can kind of relate to is your Kevin's identity for the longest time. Wasn't head of creative Kevin's identity as a professional was that performer in the ring. And I think taking someone out of the ring, even though they should be, they should have taken themselves out maybe. Um, but having that decision made for you, mm is emotionally tough. Mm -hmm. You're basically saying, okay, I know this has been a big part of your life. This is your identity. This is what you've done for the last 20, 30 years, whatever it was at that time for Kevin. Now we're just going to put that on the shelf. That's not you anymore. That's not your identity anymore. You and I can talk about it because we've hadn't had to do it. Right. I, but I think to a performer, especially one like Kevin, who was intense and it was his life that realization that that chapter of your life is over is its own kind of kick in the ass. Yeah. And when you add all that together, you've got a situation where somebody just needs to take a break, get a different perspective, you know, do whatever you need to do to come back with a fresh attitude and not let those things that have been bothering you bother you, whether it's your relationship or your, the fact that a portion of your career and your identity is now up on a shelf Whatever it is, you got to figure out how to deal with it. And that's, I think, what we were trying to do with Kevin at the time is just step back, brother, get a different perspective. Do you remember any particular blowups at all, like personality um, situations or, for that matter, even I'm just trying to, 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 to learn more about Kevin behind the scenes? Was he the type of guy who would run the meeting? Was he the type of guy who would provide a first draft and then accept notes? Would he take a look at someone else's draft and then sort of improve it and polish it up? Just take me through his, uh, I'd like to get a picture of, cause we've heard all the crazy Vince McMahon stories, right? About there's no, there is no sick and I hate sneezing. And uh, this is the idea. And tomorrow it's different. And 
he would sort of vacillate and it's not a, it's not a belt. It's a championship, blah, blah, blah. Can you give us any insight into Kevin Sullivan as a member of the creative team? You know, one of the things I liked about Kevin is he was steady as a rock when, when it came to that side of the business. He, he couldn't really get him too rattled. He, he, he was just steady. And I think the process, if I had to kind of paint a quick picture of it, the process was Kevin, obviously at the head of the table, surrounded by any number of people. You know, we talk about Terry Taylor. Uh, there was any number of people that were in that room at any given time. And I think it was Annette Yoder. Annette Yoder was there to take notes, listen, keep track of everything that, you know, is being discussed. And as ideas would start becoming more solid and, and, and appearing to be something that was going to go forward with, Annette Yoder would keep all of those notes sit down probably with Craig Leathers, who was more likely a part of that team off and on as well, and then start turning that into a format. And then that format would go to Kevin. Kevin would review it, make notes, whatever it was. It would come to me. I'd make a note, have an opinion, more often than not, sign off on it uh, for the most part, most of it. And then uh, off we go. It, it, it was, look, there wasn't, it, it, it was nothing unusual or awkward or everybody got along pretty well. Right. It was not a matter of people not getting along. It was just the quality of the team underneath Kevin that I think could have been better. What was, uh, was there an idea that he really lobbied for that you just wouldn't let him pull the trigger on? Or did he kind of have carte blanche for the most part? Just, hey man, no, I, per- I, I, I pretty much gave again, <laughs> I hate to keep saying it, but. I'm a macro manager. Right, right, right. And if, if, if I've got someone who's my head of creative, I'm going to take Kevin out of it for this example. But if I've got somebody that's my head of creative, I'm going to let them do what they're capable of doing. And I'm not going to interfere with them because how do I know if they're, if they're ever going to be what I want them to be, if I'm undermining them along the way, why hire somebody that you believe in and then undermine them and not go with their instincts or their goals. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. It certainly didn't at the time because again, my own lack of experience. You've worked with a handful of uh, pretty creative people over the years. Is Kevin the best booker you ever worked with? Do you think? I think dusty was for me, dusty, dusty was dusty's vision was so big. It's so cool. His idea, and that they didn't all work. We know that. But when you sat down, as I did so often, especially when I first got to WCW, almost exclusively when I first got to WCW, and I would just sit and I would listen to Dusty lay out a story or when we were in the car driving to an arena or driving to a venue for TV or whatever, And I would listen to Dusty talking about what he wanted to do and what he saw in his head. I was mesmerized, man. He he had a great vision. Dusty's issue was finishes and consistency. Um, That's where Kevin came in. But other than Dusty, Kevin's right there for me. I really enjoyed listening to Kevin. 
And some of his ideas were really out there and I just couldn't get with it. You know, I never, I never said no to anything, but I probably discouraged a few things along the way. Um, but I used to love, I, I used, I used, I loved hanging with Kevin and we didn't do it a lot. You know, we didn't socialize a lot. He never came over to my house. I never came. Although he invited me, he wanted Garrett and I to come down and uh, dive for lobster down in the keys and things like that. I just never got to do it, but I loved listening to Kevin. I loved, I loved his ideas. I loved riffing with him and collaborating with him. I miss Kevin. I want to see Kevin. I know he lives out in Washington or something. I think he, I saw him on oh, an island. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. Lives on a freaking Island, man. Yeah. I, I love that. I want to go see Kevin. I want to hang out with him. So I, I have questions, brother. Like you were asking me about, you know, the Benoit Nancy thing. Although I don't know if I'd bring that up, might be too sensitive for him and still none of my business to this day, but I have a lot of questions that I'd like to know from Kevin. We got to get Kevin to do something here on ad free shows with us. Maybe we can get some of these answers. You mentioned that dusty's weakness was finishes. What do you think Kevin's strengths and weaknesses were creatively? Well, his, his strength was finishes and heat. He, I mean, he was intense. He just had a feel for heat. That's what dusty told me when, Dusty told me we wanted to hire him, and and that was my experience with him. I think, and I don't know if it's a weakness, it's just an approach, a philosophy. For me, Kevin was just too animated. His ideas were 270s, 280s, and it was obvious, especially by 96, that the business was changing rapidly, like every Monday night between the stuff that Nitro was doing and the stuff that Raw was doing in that head-to-head environment, the business was evolving so much. And I think Kevin relied too much on what worked for him in the 80s. Well, let's... uh, We've all... all, Anybody that's ever been in a creative position for any length of time, you're going to go back to what worked for you in the past. You just are. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And hopefully when it doesn't, you move on and you recognize that. I think Kevin stuck with it a little too long. I, uh, I think it's, I I hope we've tried to make it clear here through the program, how much you and I think of Kevin Sullivan, uh, just hold him in high regard, creative genius, hell of an in-ring performer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there is a pretty controversial moment. I feel like I should at least bring up March 29th, 1999. There's a pretty famous angle where Bret Hart is going to be in the ring and Toronto is going to call out Bill Goldberg. Goldberg comes out, spears him. There's the reveal of the metal plate of an iconic moment in nitro history, early 99 behind the scenes. I think this is the same day where Kevin Sullivan had a, a pretty big scare. And it's been written about over the years that WCW at the time had a, a drug scene, a party scene, if you will. And guys like Chris Benoit and others were perhaps partaking a little too much and, and, uh, a, a, a new drug at the time called GHB. And it's been speculated that when Kevin had his medical incident and there were paramedics involved, 
and it's a chaotic scene behind the scenes that perhaps he maybe had had a little too much of that party drug. This is an uncomfortable, awkward position to, to be in, but here is one of the, the guys steering the ship behind the scenes. And now we've got a real medical event happening backstage. What can you tell us about that day? Oh, well, first of all, GHB for a long time was available over the counter at like GNC, right? Yeah. You can go to GNC and buy all the GHB wanted. I even tried it back in the early nineties. I used it to go to sleep. Somebody told me that if you mix it up, have it before you go to bed, you sleep like a baby. So I tried it. I liked it and I slept. Um, the problem was, and later, obviously it was made illegal, but if you overdid it, yeah, um, it was a fun ride for a minute, but you, you could shut down depending on how much you did. GHB was everywhere at the time. It wasn't illegal. Right. So, you know, I want to be careful when we talk about drugs, you know, this was. No, it's not, it's not an illegal narcotic. It, yeah. I don't think it was illegal at the time. No, I don't it's think not. it was made illegal, made illegal until afterwards, after this point. But in either event, Kevin, Kevin had too much. There was a lot of guys that used it and it didn't bother them. They didn't abuse it or they didn't abuse it at work. Um, that night, for whatever reason, Kevin used it, used too much and had a reaction to it. What do I remember of it? I, I wasn't there when Kevin went down because he did. I don't know if he had a seizure or something that looked like a seizure. Um, I wasn't there when it happened, but I showed up shortly after that happened. And it was scary as fuck. Yeah. It did. I mean, it, it wasn't like uh, somebody got drunk and fell off a bar stool. This was not that. This was a lot more like a seizure. Probably was one. Foaming at the mouth, rigid body shaking all of that. So I didn't know what it was initially. And we were scared to death. I was for Kevin's health. Well, we're glad Kevin's still with us and, uh, we're glad he was able to overcome that, but I'm sure there were, that led to some uncomfortable conversations once he got to feeling better. Uh, ultimately later that same year, you're going to be, we'll call it reassigned sent home August of 99, but Sullivan comes into full power in January of 2000 when now Vince Russo is sent home just a few months into his stint that leads to the radicals leaving for the WWF. I guess there's fear that maybe Sullivan's going to have some hurt feelings with Benoit and take it out on him. Sullivan went so far as to punish Chris Benoit by letting him main event a pay-per-view and beat Sid vicious for the WCW title. Still the guys made the decision to leave. Um, were you, were you watching the program? In that era, were you keeping nope. up with the behind the scenes? Nope. I'd occasionally get a, you know, Hulk would call me or DDP would call me. Ernest Miller, I talked to, but I, I, I didn't watch a minute of it. I just, I wanted to be done with wrestling. I was over at that time. How many times did I think wrestling was in my rear view mirror? This was probably the first one. Right. But yeah, no, I didn't watch it at all, man. A few months later, you come in, uh, you and Russo were back in April of 2000. And for some reason, Sullivan sent home until the end of his contract. Do you know why that decision was made? I don't, 
you know, when I was brought back, I was brought back as a consultant. That was a Brad Siegel decision. I don't know why Brad felt the way he felt or made the decision he made. In hindsight, I sure wish they would have sent Russo home and let Sullivan and I have a whack at it. I think the outcome would have been different. I, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. That's for sure. And, um, and that was the proven team that gave WCW success. Right. Yeah. But, they, but, but, but you got to remember. I got sent home on September 10th, 1999. And I have a pretty clear idea as to why I don't go into it here, but I have a pretty good understanding as to why. And I deserved it by the way. Um, they, they, that was a tough decision though for them to let me go was a really tough. And it came from way high up. I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty certain it came from a woman by the name of Vicki Miller, who was the head of Turner Finance at the time. She was and one of those who was hoping that Ted would pull the plug on WCW at some point. But I, whatever, I was let go. Probably deserved it because I wouldn't play nice with her. Um, but they hired Vince Russo. They hired this guy. That they that sold him a bill of goods. Russo came in, and I wasn't there, so I shouldn't say what he said. I have been told that Russo came in and pretty much took credit for everything that happened creatively in WWE. Right, he was solely responsible for WWE success. Well, at that point in time, Brad Siegel was desperate, mm-hmm. wanted to believe it, and and look, Russo could be very convincing, very convincing. Um, Brad made a decision, put all his money down on, on Vince Russo, the guy that was going to turn everything around. And within about a month or six weeks, realized that he made a huge mistake. Russo was under contract. Couldn't fire him. He, they had just sent me home and then brought me back. Right. Paid me more money to do it. Um, I, I think. I think Brad was trying to save face. He didn't want to have to go, Oh, I hired this guy. Cause I thought he was the guy that turned WWE around. I looked under the hood. There's nothing there. This guy's a lunatic. I can't work with him. We got to bring Eric Bischoff back. Can you imagine what that conversation sounded like in the North tower? Yeah. <laughs> but I think Brad probably just didn't want to have to deal with the fact that he had to fire a guy that he had just hired and he made a bad decision. So it was easier to keep. So there under me, because I was brought back to oversee Russo, um, even though I was a consultant, I was there to kind of keep keep a handle on Russo. And that was an easier decision for Brad Siegel than saying, okay, Vince, I know I just hired you, probably signed you to a two or three-year contract for whatever amount of money. You've only been here six weeks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you home, and you're going to get paid for the next year or two or three, whatever it was. It was easier just to keep him there and, and send send. Co- uh, send Sullivan home. And the other thing I think that factored into that, I'm guessing again, I, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it kind of makes sense is that there was a whole lot of jockeying for position. Once I left and probably that period of time before Russo came in and even subsequent to Russo, there were any number of people jockeying for position. Right. And I'm sure Brad Siegel got an earful about Kevin Sullivan from any number of those people that were jockeying for position. So I doubt that Brad Siegel had a really good idea of just how capable Kevin Sullivan could be. 
because he'd been fed a pretty negative picture of Kevin Sullivan by others. Are you surprised? I mean, he goes home in 2000. Here we are 22 years later, and certainly he's helped with independent promotions here and there. But are you surprised that he never got a real opportunity with the WWF? That, that always just was interesting to me that here's a guy who everybody knows is a creative genius and, and has value in, in a booking room and, and one of the greatest minds in professional wrestling, but for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like he ever gets a serious look. I even asked Kevin that once and he said he did have a meeting once with Stephanie McMahon and, uh, it was in some hotel suite, you know, WWE's a touring company and that's where it happened. But she asked him for a resume and I just thought, what? And I understand WWE is a corporate environment and et cetera, et cetera. But you would think that considering that she goes on TV and says, well, we were fighting for our life and my dad's business and blah, blah, blah. Well, this is the guy who helped kick his ass. You, you need a resume from that guy. I just find it interesting that all these years later, Sullivan never really had a stint there. Is that odd to you? Yes and no. I think part of it is Kevin. Kevin never pushed himself too hard. Right. I, I mean, I, 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 Kevin was more, it's just an impression, but to me, Kevin was the kind of guy who's like, Hey, if they call me, I'd love to work with him, but he's not going to like sit back and try to create his way in and push his way in or, pressure his way in. I think Kevin is more the type of guys. Hey, if they call me, I'd love to do it. But if not, I'm cool fishing or doing whatever I'm doing. That's just my impression. I don't know that that's true. What's one thing you could tell us about Kevin that maybe our listeners don't know. He's a very loyal guy. Yeah. He's a very loyal friend and a very loyal employee. Doesn't mean he didn't, you know, have an issue here and there. We talked about what happened in Toronto, but, um, I always believe, I didn't believe I knew Kevin had my back. Right. And I just have an immense amount of respect and appreciation for people like that. Loyalty to me, loyalty, especially in the wrestling business, loyalty is one of the most important things in life in business. Personally, I just, and it's rare. It's rare to find people who are truly loyal. They're loyal when it's convenient. They're loyal when there's something in it for them. But when the chips are down and you're in a trench or you're in a street fight, I'd want Kevin Sullivan next to me because I could trust him. And that's a rare, I, I find, I find loyalty to be a very rare commodity. Like I said, especially in the wrestling business. And Kevin, I never felt that way with Kevin. I never, ever felt for a second that, in any of my conversations, creatively, personally, professionally, at any level, that I had to worry about my back or anything that I said to Kevin Sullivan. Well, I'll tell you what, you never have to worry again. If you've got AG1, Eric, they've been a longtime sponsor here on the program, and uh, I think you might actually be the biggest proponent of this. When you're traveling later today, you're going to uh, Toronto, you got your bag packed. I bet in that bag, some AG1. Would I be betting correctly? I have travel packs. I have travel packs in my bag. In fact, I got them when you and I were in Dallas at the uh, that event. Uh, what was that called? Podcast the, Movement. 
podcast movement. And we met with some of the fine folks at AG1 and had a great conversation with them. And they went up to their uh, suite and they brought me back down a, a travel kit. So I, it's still in my briefcase. I use it as, or not my briefcase, my suitcase. I still use it when I'm on the road. And yeah, I have it. I started Absolutely. taking AG1 at the start of the pandemic. My wife found it on her own, not through this podcast. Uh, she wanted to optimize our immune system. And she knew that I hated taking pills. And if I was going to do some sort of supplement, it needed to taste good. What we've learned along the way was not only does it check those boxes, it gets you more energy and better gut health. Here's, here's what this is. AG one, just one delicious scoop of AG one every day means you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right. It's going to help you with all your things. Your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your aging, your recovery. And it really is just one scoop in a cup of water. That's it. It's lifestyle friendly. Whether you're trying to eat keto or paleo or vegan or dairy free or gluten free, there's less than one gram of sugar. There's no GMOs. There's no nasty chemicals. There's no artificial anything. And it still tastes good. Don't just take Eric and I's word for it. You'll see more than 7,000 five star reviews. Think about the last time you went out of your way to leave a review over 7,000 folks have done it at a rating of five stars for AG one. So right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health and to make it easy. Athletic greens is giving you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Let's jump into it. Uh, here's one. Uh, Snaky Jakey says watching various WCW documentaries over the years. There's always lots of people trying to take credit for good ideas. Kevin <laughs> Sullivan and Mike Graham spring to mind. How influential was Kevin? I always thought he was a bit of a joke in WCW. I think that's a shame, man, because so many people just saw the dungeon of doom and thought, well, here's his (laughs) contribution to wrestling. Isn't that a shame? That's just a generation of wrestling fans think that's what Kevin Sullivan was. They don't know about the Prince of darkness. They don't know about the behind the scenes. It's crazy. Yeah. And they never worked with him. So they would have no appreciation for what he did behind the scenes. But you know, that's look, Mike Graham, obviously I think the two, two, and I hate to say anything about Mike because he's not here to defend himself. I'll say it as respectfully as I can. Uh, Mike Graham was a lot larger in, in his mind than he was in life. I don't mean that physically, but I mean, in terms of his importance and involvement seconded only by Greg Gagne. Um, those two in particular seem to have Mike did Greg does have a knack for taking credit for a whole lot of things. They had nothing to do with. Um, but that's not the case with Kevin. I, I, I don't, I don't think Kevin's taking credit for anything. He doesn't deserve to take either all the credit or partial credit. For. Agree. Uh, here's one, uh, Scotty who's clearly, uh, aware of the Florida stuff says just how satanic is Sullivan. Do you have any off air examples? How hilarious is that? That people think, no, that's real, man. He really was a devil worshiper. No, Kevin, if you didn't know Kevin Sullivan, you know, back then, if you didn't know that he was in the professional wrestling business and you just met him on the street or you met him in a restaurant or a shopping store, whatever, a bar, whatever, 
It's just a, he's just as normal and average as he's just a good guy. You wouldn't, the satanic thing is that's all that was his character. Wasn't who he is. <laughs> the ball pit on Twitter has a great idea. Can you imagine if Kevin Sullivan was able to cut loose with a guy like Bray Wyatt, what that could look like? Isn't that amazing to think about? Ooh, that would be fun. Yeah. It'd it just would. be fun to watch him in the process mm-hmm. just to be a part of the team. Cause I'm sure there's a team of people that are working on that. I don't know how big the team is, but you know, I knew when I was there, um, there was a couple people in particular that worked together on that character including Bray, obviously, but it would be fun to just be a fly on the wall and watch Kevin in that environment to see how much fun he could have with a really big fun idea. I mean, that, look, that idea, what they're doing, the white rabbit and everything else they're doing is so way over the top. Yes. But it's done so well that it's cool. I mean, I really dig it. I was watching some of it on social media while I was waiting for you to, or waiting for us to, to jump on this morning. Some really cool, sh- not my cup of tea, mind you, but still very, very cool. And Kevin would have thrived in that environment. Well, what could have been, you know, I, I don't think the Monday night wars would have looked anything like they did without Kevin Sullivan. Uh, I agree. What, what a phenomenal in-ring performer and his contributions to WCW boy, we could talk for two more hours about it, but that is the end of today's program. We're going to be back next week talking about the beast from the East, Bam Bam Bigelow. We're going to cover his WCW run. And maybe if you had any interaction with him prior to that, of course you get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. It starts at just nine bucks a month. That's like 16 cents an episode. We've also got tons of bonus content, like the brand new edition of title chase. We break down Ron Simmons world title. You recently sat down with Raven to clear the air after nearly two decades, Halloween havoc 92. We had a little watch along for that with uh, Jake, the snake Roberts. You got to ask all kinds of questions there. So much cool stuff, including a brand new series. We just launched called the book. We take you month by month through the journey of the original world-class and we have the original world-class booking sheets. We have Fritz von Eric's day planner. We're going to show it to you day by day and talk with David Manning about what in the world was going on. We've got some really cool stuff, uh, spinning off of that. So stay tuned. Lots of new fun ideas in the hopper, including a brand new program called making the town. We're breaking down old booking sheets. We're breaking down old title belts. Now we're breaking down old venues. Some of the most iconic venues throughout wrestling history. All of this is happening at adfreeshows.com. If you're digging 83 weeks, throw us a like, hit that subscribe button. If you think we've earned it, throw us a five-star rating. And if you want to uh, bust Eric's balls, boy, he's really active on Twitter and he's fired up. He's at E. Bischoff. We are at 83 weeks and we're also out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.